Pico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. turtles shared by the Brown County Hour by naturalist Jim Eagleman. We also have a feature from Norm Holy. This is part three of his interview with David Koniski, a professor at IU Bloomington School of Public and Environmental Affairs. That's coming up later in the program, but first, your environmental headlines. The U.S. Bureau of Land Management is considering building a 200-mile industrial road that will disturb a critical caribou migration route in Alaska. The road will cut through the gates of the Arctic National Preserve and cross 2,900 streams, 11 major rivers, and 1,700 acres of wetlands. Each year, the Western Arctic caribou herd undertakes one of the longest land migrations on Earth. The herd travels as many as 2,700 miles per year. That's the distance from Seattle, Washington to Miami, Florida. The proposed Ambler Road will cross public lands but will be off limits to the public and not be connected to a single community. It will threaten the subsistence lifestyle of rural Alaskans. The state of Alaska has proposed to finance construction of the gravel road. The estimated cost is half a billion dollars. Revenues from the proposed toll road don't guarantee repayment. Monarch butterflies may have had a good summer in some parts of the country. High populations were reported in central Pennsylvania and New Hampshire. Mostly, they have been observed by hikers, so this is not a systematic attempt at determining viability. The people who reported bigger numbers have been following their local populations for many years. In some outdoor excursions, they have seen more than 100 butterflies per mile. The eastern states do not use Roundup like people in the Midwest do. The migration to Mexico has started and there is some optimism among those trying to reestablish monarch populations. In the 1990s, monarchs occupied more than 50 acres of forest. By 2014, the acreage occupied was down to three acres. Chip Taylor, who heads Monarch Watch at the University of Kansas, has made a science of predicting what this winter's monarch population will look like. By early May, Based on data collected up until that time, Taylor had predicted a downward trend to between 10 and 12 acres. This was followed by favorable conditions during late May, June, and July. By early August, Taylor had upped his prediction to 12 to 15 acres. While the eastern population may be increasing, an important component of the size that will migrate depends upon California. 
pesticides, habitat losses, and more frequent and severe droughts caused by climate change are believed to be the primary reasons for the decimation of the monarch. The monarch butterfly population in California has dropped to less than one-half of one percent of its historical size. The true size of this year's migration will not become available until late February or early March. Most of the U.S. will likely see higher than normal temperatures this autumn, according to a three-month forecast projected by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. The entire nation will experience warmer weather now through December, but those with the greatest temperature increases include northern Alaska, the southwest, and the Four Corners region of New England, according to USA Today. It's a continuation of a warming trend observed for the last few decades. Temperatures will be between 10 and 20 degrees above average across the Deep South and into the Ohio Valley and Mid-Atlantic, reports the Weather Channel. NOAA's three-month outlook suggests that through the end of the year, there is a 30 to 50 percent chance that states on both the east and west coasts Gulf of Mexico, southern border states, and Alaska will see temperatures above normal. Parts of the Midwest and around the Great Lakes are expected to see temperatures near normal. Precipitation is expected to be high in the Great Lakes region and parts of the northern Midwest. Meanwhile, most of California and western Nevada will see lower than normal precipitation through the end of the year. How popular is the pebble mine concept among Alaskans? Not very popular at all. I think the polling data that has happened, especially within the Bristol Bay region, has consistently uh, shown a very significant majority of people that live in the neighborhood there that would be most directly affected by the mine are against the mine. The people of the state of Alaska, when polled, a significant majority are against the project. So uh, Alaskans understand and value wild salmon, and they value the significance of that place and the fact that uh, even today more than 14,000 jobs are connected to that fishery uh, with permits being issued not only to people around the state, but also around the United States. There are folks in Indiana that have Bristol Bay salmon fishing, commercial salmon fishing permits. So the state is generally against the mine, and the closer you get to the site, with the exception of a couple uh, Native communities that are adjacent to the mine and see some uh, economic benefit. But within that entire region in the state, Pebble is not a popular project. You could drive around the state and see no pebble stickers on vehicles just about everywhere. I'd like to ask you, uh, do you have anything else you'd like to say to our listeners? I'll tell you what, Norm. This process uh, has been going on for about 30 years. And uh, maybe eight years ago, the tribes within the region and the commercial fishermen within the region petitioned the Environmental Protection Agency to stop the pebble mine. Uh, they said it was the wrong mine in the wrong place. In fact, our the late great 
senior senator from Alaska, Ted Stevens, said it's the wrong mine at the wrong place. And back during the Obama administration, the EPA said we can't, we can't preemptively stop this mine without understanding what's going on. And so they launched a three-year-plus scientific process that resulted in a watershed assessment that said the pebble mine, unless it had a tiny footprint, would disrupt the freshwater and salmon fishery from the region. And the uh, EPA administrator was just about to use the provision of the Clean Water Act to preemptively stop that mine. Well, things changed with uh, the current administration, and the Pebble Mine was encouraged to apply for their permit, and the Corps of Engineers has been managing that process for the last year and a half in a very compressed and very accelerated permitting process to try and evaluate what many of us and many of the scientists and engineers that have looked at the Pebble Plan say, is an inadequate plan, and but the current administration seems to be driven to permit this mine sometime in early 2020. And for those of us in the conservation community, the commercial fishing community, the sport fishing community, because Bristol Bay is perhaps uh, one of the best-known salmon and trout fishing locations on the planet, the indigenous communities and others, I have opposed this mine, but the uh, the juggernaut continues, and we're very concerned that the thumb is on the scale, and this administration will ignore the science uh, that was done during the EPA watershed assessment. They'll ignore the comments made during the recent comment period to the draft environmental impact statement by other federal agencies, including scientists with the EPA and with the Department of Interior, and that we're concerned that this administration is determined to permit the mine in spite of the opinion of the vast number of people within the region, within Alaskans in general, and with millions of people around the country that have responded to these public comment periods over the last few years with regard to the mine. So uh, I can't understand why a place that is a intact, functioning ecosystem that provides a surplus of fish that employs over 14,000 people a year and feeds people around the world and also maintains those uh, ecological functions uh, of an intact system with the diversity of wildlife, with the carbon storage, with the freshwater uh, preserving those freshwaters, why we would risk all of that for a mine like Pebble. And, and Norm, uh, if, you, if you don't mind me going on a, a little bit, there are, are other impacts that are not understood and, and underappreciated. One of the things that's going to accompany this mine, if permitted, is an 83-mile-long transportation corridor, a year-round road, from Macdadori Beach, a, a, a small bay on Kamishak Bay on Cook Inlet. So it's, it's not even in the Bristol Bay watershed. It's in the Cook Inlet watershed. Probably the worst place to build the port 
in uh, this part of Alaska, maybe any part of Alaska, due to its exposure to uh, horrible weather and uh, and the uh, proximity to endangered species, whales and belugas, etc. But this mining uh, transportation corridor that would be accompanied by a gas line that would have to cross Cook Inlet about a hundred and some miles. This transportation corridor would not only allow the development of the pebble mine, it would facilitate the development of other mining claims within the region. So we could turn Bristol Bay from this remarkably intact and productive ecosystem into a mining district, um, and that's a concern of many people, let alone the dangers associated with the destruction of streams and rivers and the construction of the mine, let alone the problem with fugitive dust and the the risks of spills of not only uh, uh, fuels, but also the mine, the mineral concentrate that would be transported out from the mine, but also from the risks of a large tail mining uh, containment failure. You know, one of these containment dams and structures in this seismically active region, if of a containment structure fails, you'll have a situation like you had at the Mount Polly mine down in uh, British Columbia, which, by the way, has apparently subsequently closed. So the the risks associated with this mine, as far as many of us can see, and the potential to transform this place uh, from a, a remarkably productive ecosystem into a mining district is really troubling. And I think that's the concern of many Alaskans and many of us in the conservation community as well. Thank you very much for your comments. Uh, Very enlightening. Uh, I've been speaking with Dave Applin. He's the Director of Education and Outreach, the Arctic Field Program for the World Wildlife Fund. Thank you very much, Dave. Norm, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. We'll now be listening to Jim Eagleman from the Brown County Hour sharing information about the box turtle. WFHB-FM. My question for you today is, how many box turtles have you seen this spring? How many have you moved off the road so it wouldn't get hit? I hear friends often tell me they stopped while driving a country road to help a turtle to the other side. And I always recall hearing of an unfortunate accident that happened when some well-intending person did this. There has to be a safety first thought each of us has when we see a turtle. Do not place yourself in a dangerous situation. The eastern box turtle is a terrestrial reptile that's graced the Hoosier landscape for eons of time. And sometimes now we come upon them when walking in the woods. When I do, I always consider it a bonus. Wooded areas in Brown County are part of its normal habitat, but they can live wherever a protected or natural area exists and where food and water is found. And I would have to add these requirements must exist in proper proportions. Since they are omnivorous, they eat both plant and animal materials, worms, fruits, slugs, mushrooms, salamanders, bird eggs, roots, and of course flowers. Box turtles have two shells. And by closing the bottom shell, called the plastron, up against the upper shell, the carapace, they can encase themselves for protection from predators. Hence the name box turtle. The plastron is hinged across entirely about one-third of the bottom shell, allowing a tight fit. 
It is the carapace we first catch a glimpse of. It's sometimes rightly colored with yellow and orange designs or blotches on the many sections of the shell called scutes. The unique feature of the shell, in addition to allowing protection and camouflage, is that the backbone of this vertebrate animal is fused into the inside of the top shell. If you ever find a shell of the box turtle, the carapace, usually bleached and smooth from weathering, look for this pronounced spinal column still visible on the inside of the shell. Well, speaking of shells, you can also tell the sex of a box turtle by close inspection of the bottom shell, the plastron. If it has a noticeable depression in the middle of the shell near the hind legs and about the size of where your thumb could fit, it is a male. Males usually have red eyes, but not always. You may also have seen notices that tell us now that the eastern box turtle status has changed and numbers, unfortunately, are declining. We see this conservation message on outdoor magazines, newspapers, and even on billboards. Like many other dwindling species, it's habitat destruction that has caused this animal to be less common. I can recall picking up box turtles as a kid and having races with them. We'd mark the shell with nail polish and our initial and keep them for a few days in a cardboard box and after the race leave them go, not always in the same spot we found them. And this seemingly harmless practice of keeping a box turtle in the captivity even for a short time may have caused more harm than good. Now we know better from some of the research that's been conducted on these unique and ancient reptiles. With radio beepers attached to the carapace, researchers can now follow the routes of both sexes of box turtles. They have found that if all the requirements are present, a box turtle can live in its entire life within a square mile of healthy forest land. They possess what's called home reign loyalty, and they cannot be removed from this area. Here they will continue living life as a turtle, feeding, mating, and sunning themselves when warmth for digestion is needed. But any kind of development on that once undisturbed track now creates obstacles for normal turtle behavior. Digging holes for eggs, laid by the female for example, can be interrupted with vibrations of heavy equipment working as far away as two miles. If movement is restricted at mating time due to a road or a field or a recent parking lot, the turtle may not find a suitable mate. With less chance of mating, of course, numbers go down. If I innocently collect a turtle from the wild, children do this a lot, and I was guilty too, either a male or a female, behavior, particularly mating behavior, is affected. Of course, more roads means more fragmentation of the forest and a chance for more accidents for the turtle. We see far too many turtles crawling to cross a road, now less in hot summer than in early spring. Well-meaning turtle lovers should be conscious of all traffic safety. Never put yourself or your passengers in a dangerous situation. If you can, pull off the road, turn on your safety flashers, and move the turtle off the road in the direction it was heading. Keep a bottle of hand sanitizer in the car to wipe your hands immediately after handling, as turtles can carry salmonella. The eastern box turtle, this ancient animal as in armor, as it's been called, is a native species. It's been on the face of the earth a long, long time and belongs here in our Brown County woods. It's illegal to keep them as pets, so enjoy them on your hikes, where they are, and by all means, keep yourself safe if you do lend a helping hand. Thanks for listening. There's another Nature Note on the Brown County Hour, WFHB-FM. For comments, questions, please contact me, Jim Eagleman, at this station's email address, studio at browncountyhour.com. 
For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome and we provide training you'll need. Please contact us at wfhb.org. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now, coming local events. BOGA, the Bloomington Organic Gardeners Association, will host a free plant swap on Saturday, October 5th from 9 a.m. to noon at the Bloomington Community Farmers Market. Bring plants and seeds to share and or swap. Join MCIRIS and the City of Bloomington's Park and Recreation for a fun workshop to learn about native plants and how to identify and control invasive species on Saturday, October 5th from 1 to 4 p.m. at the Alcott Park Goat Farm located at 2000 East Winslow Road. Meet at the Sherwood Oaks Shelter. Register by contacting Joanna Sparks at sparkj at bloomington.in.gov or call 812-349-3497. Volunteers are needed to help clean the shorelines of Lake Monroe on Sunday, October 6th from 1.30 to 5.30 p.m. Meet at the Cutright State Recreation Area where you will be transported to different parts of the shoreline by boat. Enjoy a free thank you cookout after work. Register at bit.ly slash Monroe Shoreline 2019. The first Saturday Invasive Control Workday is scheduled for Saturday, October 5th from 1 to 4 p.m. at the RCA Community Park, where you will help remove woody invasive plants. Meet at the RCA Small Shelter and wear long pants, long sleeves, and close-toed shoes. Register with Joanna Sparks at sparkj at bloomington.in.gov or call 812-349-3497. 
With increasing pressure from development and human activity, wildlife habitat is on the decline. You can help by creating a wildlife sanctuary in your own yard and celebrate World Habitat Day, as well as learn ways to make your yard an inviting space for all kinds of wildlife at the Habitats Are Hip class on Monday, October 7th, from 6 to 7 p.m. at the RCA Community Park. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature on the box turtle was produced by Jim Eagleman from the Brown County Hour. The feature interview with David Kozinski was produced by Norm Holy and edited by Patrick Callahan. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. David Lyman wrote and edited the script. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show with help from co-producer Kaylin Huffman-Brower. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. And this is EcoReport. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. 
That's earth at wfhb.org.